You're listening to the Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, and I'm here with my co-hosts and, co- and colleagues from the School of Public Service at Boise State, Corey Cook and Jackie Kedler. How y'all doing today? Very well, thank you. All right. <laughs> uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Maria Andrade. Uh, and I'm shocked. She gave me a thumbs up, which means I pronounced it correctly. I think that's the first time that's happened with one of her guests, so I'm very proud of myself. Um, and she's here uh, from uh, Immigrant Justice Idaho, uh, which is a, a nonprofit here in Boise that works with uh, immigrants on legal issues, correct? Yep. Yeah, so uh, let's start off there. Like, Can you tell us more about what you do and kind of how you, you came to, to do this in Boise? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on. Uh, probably most important is to know that we're launching actually on October 1st, and Immigrant Justice Idaho is currently a state-recognized nonprofit, and the primary motivation for doing so is that there are no free um, immigration court attorneys provided for anybody. So if you have to stand before a judge and um, try and plead to you can stay or put on a case for asylum or something like that, you have to do that alone against trained prosecutors um, unless you have enough money to pay a private lawyer. So uh, one of our main goals is to put bodies in court with individuals. Um, And then the second big um, goal is to educate, uh, do a bit of education um, among the public and train up-and-coming lawyers or lawyers who want to take on a pro bono case so that we can expand the the net of people that can serve a really um, vulnerable population in Idaho. So uh, immigration law is civil law, right? So so, uh, people accused of immigration offenses don't have access to public defenders? Right, because um, because the the worst penalty of being deported is uh, simply having to leave the country and you're not being sent to jail, you don't get the same Sixth Amendment protection and um, right to have a free lawyer paid by the government for you. So, uh, and I think when we talk about immigration, a lot of people think about the border states from Texas and California and all this. I mean, how big of an issue is this in Idaho? It's a really big issue, although um, our numbers aren't as great. And I, um, in terms of you know, mass numbers of immigrants. We have a large proportion of our non-citizen population. It makes up the labor force. And I actually think that, what do we have? 6%, as of 2017, 6% of Idaho residents um, were immigrants, and they make up 40% of the labor force. So then you combine that with the fact that we have um, a state with a lot of small rural communities, and layer on top of that the um, sort of boutique area or you uh, you know specialty area of immigration law what you end up with are few immigration lawyers called upon to provide services across a very diverse state with a lot of kind of physical geographical boundaries um, and you know otherwise doesn't because it doesn't have a lot of you know non um, native born individuals living here the services that are maybe wrapped into when you you go to the DMV in San Diego or you go to buy groceries in another state there there isn't necessarily a consciousness about um, being sensitive to like language ability uh, fears that people might have with interacting with the, with government officials and those kinds of things so so while raw numbers aren't great the need is is very um, particular here and, and what kind of services do y'all offer uh, to you know illegal immigrants that are here? So um, for basically the the scope of services are that we will provide um, uh, 
defense meaning like people who stand to be or have to ask to be able to stay in the United States before an immigration judge. So standing in court, being basically acting as lawyer or legal advocates in court with individuals. So there's a court in Boise and the judge comes from Utah and we go there and we do our trials there. So we will intake people, we will screen them to see if they have relief available. If somebody else in the community is already providing the service they need at a low cost, like maybe they don't actually have a court case. They thought they did, but they don't. And Catholic Charities can see them for free. We will refer them out to other locations. So deportation defense is one. Um, and the other would be that we will provide the service of education to um to people who want to become advocates for them and for other lawyers. So let me provide an example. We have a lot of people, and I think we were talking about this earlier, a lot of students have expressed, right, like interest in immigration law recently. Yeah, but many of my students going to law school that they want to work in immigration, immigration law. Okay. Um, well, and so that's not uncommon, especially these days. But when they graduate, what they're going to find is that most immigration firms in Idaho are small. They don't hire a lot of people. That we don't have years and years and years of experience collectively to provide the needed training. Um, so one of the target areas for education will be newer up-and-coming lawyers. We will offer to provide technical assistance, maybe co-counsel cases, um, offer people access to our pleading banks or to do strategizing. And, um, or maybe you're an environmental lawyer who's interested in picking up a pro bono case, and, but you don't you want to commit like ineffective assistance. So, so we're going to work and provide education there. We probably will do other services for a while um, because we're going to move a lot of our private clients. So right now I have a private law firm, Andrade Legal, and we're going to be moving a lot of our cases um, from the clients who agree to, you know, to Immigrant Justice Idaho, and we'll need to close up some of those. And not all of those cases are before court. Some of them are people seeking naturalization or trying to bring in the cute woman they met in France, you know, or something. But um, but mostly it's going to be courts. It's going to be a court deportation defense, uh, getting people out of custody who are um, who are being held in detention centers and um, education. And I just want to say that on some future show, I'd like to have you back and so we can talk more about these uh, cute women from France and mail-order brides, because I feel like that will make a wonderful show. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you're filling a need in the state. So um, there's kind of a gap in, in the uh, coverage. Yeah. For um, So let's say that you are um, a non-citizen and you're the victim of a crime, and so you qualify for a visa that you can apply for affirmatively, meaning you are making the choice to make, bring yourself to the attention of immigration officials for the purpose of applying for something. That kind of affirmative benefit, there are organizations who currently provide services for low-income people. Um, in addition to Catholic Charities Immigration Program, there's Community Council of Idaho, um, there's La Posada, um, there's the International Rescue Community. So, but none of those none of those programs have a robust. Um, have some of them don't offer any court representation. Some are beginning to to enter in that direction, but they haven't had years of experience to do so. So, yeah. And it sounds like this education component is really interesting. And in it seems like a lot of people graduate law school and don't really know how to practice law anyways. So it seems like a great opportunity for new lawyers. Yeah, we hope so, because certainly we want to encourage more people. I mean, every all of my private immigration lawyer friends in Idaho, we're all busy. I mean, most it's a very it's a very welcoming bar, but um, the fact of the matter is there's more work, and we want more people to join the practice. But you know, m most people don't don't think it's a good idea and, and don't want to learn an area of law on the backs 
of their clients. You don't want to learn <clears throat> something not to do in trial because you just lost a case. You want to learn from, you know, prospectively, you know, ahead of time and, and have maybe the chance to have co-counsel that is experienced to make sure that you learn the best practices that are going to, you know, achieve the result you want and, and make you the advocate that you want to be. Right. So how do you become interested in this area of law, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, I've, I've always been interested in immigration law just from my family background. Um, my, my family are, you know, were farm workers in California growing up, but um, I came to it actually by way of farm worker law. Uh, my first job out of law school was um, working with farm workers, and my, my initial interest was primarily doing like low-wage worker you know, representation, collective people are being fired for retaliation. You know, filing a workers' comp claim or organizing or asking to get paid. But what I found is that every time we talked about potential lawsuits or asking, um, making a demand for wages, that everybody's first concern was, how will this affect my immigration status? Am I going to come to the attention? And so... Um, am I going to come to the attention of immigration? And so we, while I had immigration law in the background of my of my interests and sort of kind of had tracked it regularly. It wasn't until after my first two years of practice that I realized that this is actually the thing I got to know and master because this is like the shelter, oxygen, food of, you know, it's of that level of necessity for this population. They won't, you feel very constrained and very separated from the community and fearful, fearful about what you can and cannot do it so long as you don't have um, lawful status or you have family members who don't. All right. Thank you. That's some interesting stuff. But uh, unfortunately, we need to take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Ultra Big Ten on Radio Boise. This is Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap. Did you know that dozens of people spontaneously combust each year? It's just not reported in the mainstream media. For you in the Treasure Valley who can avoid that, you've got Radio Boise on 89.9 FM and 93.5 Downtown Community Radio for Boise and beyond. You're back on the Big Ten uh, on Radio Boise, and uh, I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, with my co-host Corey Cook and Jackie Kettler, and we have a, a special guest, um, Maria Andrade, um, from uh, Immigrant Justice Idaho. Uh, and she, previously in a, the previous segment, she was telling us uh, about uh, you know uh, what Immigrant Justice Idaho does and, and her work in the community. Um, but that's not all you do, right? There, there's a lot of other things. And I hear you just got back from a, a trip to the border, and maybe you could tell us some more about some things that are going on down there. Sure. Um, so I myself and, and my staff at Andrade Legal in our private firm capacity has for years been committed to um, community work and pro bono work. And so in that capacity and in, in cooperation with um, Idaho Organizing Project, a group that I was involved in forming, um, we put, took a group of um, five of us went to the El Paso border to work directly with families um, that had been separated from their children. And so what did you, what was kind of the situation down there? What did you see kind of on the ground? Yeah, it was it was rough. Um, so what we did is um, we would go to interview um, parents to both find out about what were the circumstances under which their children were taken. Were they was there trickery? Were they promised something? Was it aggressive? Was it not? Um, and then we talked about um, collected data with regard to how long it had been since they'd seen them, what or talked to them, what were um, the attempted communications made. And it's important to note that we were there. You know, like three weeks after the deadline, supposed deadline, sorry, actually probably closer, maybe like 10 days 
to two weeks after the deadline supposedly that was to reunify. So we're, we're seeing parents who are exasperated, who are, and then they're in jail. You know, so we go, you have to go through the metal detector. They're in full prison, you know, garb. You have to talk through a plate glass. And some of them were, some of them were so under such anguish you could barely talk to them. And most of them, a lot of them were men. I mostly met with men. Other people saw women. But you saw really the breakdown of um, people's hope. And you saw desperation on levels that was really hard to take. Um, so we did that part of data gathering for, you know, we put together some declarations for the ACLU for some of their lawsuit around the separation issue. And then the other thing we did was... Um, talked with them about their immigration cases. Um, I trained these non-attorney volunteers about some lines of questioning to help develop their asylum claims and identify the strength of the claim or not. And so we did lots of case notes. And um, the place we went to was using a database system that allowed teams of waves of volunteers to come for different periods of time and continue to work where the last volunteer uh, left off in the case. So we were doing legal work. and data collection primarily, and then trying to find kids for parents. One of our volunteers was a social worker who made lots and lots and lots of phone calls to try and find kids. Well, and so um, I think that's a kind of an important part, point, right? Because there was this separation policy that continued, but the Trump administration really had difficulty reuniting these families. And so that's an ongoing issue, correct, that there's still physical separation that's going on, even though it's not technically in yeah. policy? Yeah. So you have the, the parent-child units that are separated because the parent got deported during that time, often under a promise that if you sign this paper, uh, you will be reunified with your child. Um, So you have some folks that are in another country. You have some folks that, for whatever reason, um, the government is asserting that they're not eligible to be reunified. And um, they made up this rule of eligibility. And their line is that, well, if we can't verify that they're the parent, then we're not going to release them, which seems legitimate enough. But what's happening on the ground is that my colleagues and uh, other friends of mine that are working on these cases have done everything from send birth certificates, family photos, talked about birthmarks and things that really should be accepted to prove kind of familial relationship. Um, And then the last thing is they're just refusing to reunify people that they, they say have criminal records. And the criminal record could be an allegation of crimes that was not resolved in the U.S. or somewhere else, something very, very minor. And, um, you know, the, the question presented to me is like, well, is that the new rule for what it takes to be a parent? Must you, must you never have been ever accused of something? But the, the, it reveals that the government had zero, zero plan about how they were ever going to get these parents together. Parents' records are not tracked to kids' records. They didn't have a plan. It's just, it's obvious. And so that's kind of with the families that have been separated. Now that there's not a policy of separating, what's happening to families when they uh, come across the border? So um, now what's happening is that they uh, predominantly are being sent to family detention centers, which um, now a really big one is in Dilly, Texas. And there are different Idaho attorneys who have gone down there to work within the family detention center. So they're... Their solution is if you don't want to be separated, you can be together as a unit in jail. Um, Some folks are getting um, what we would call release on a bond from the border. Uh, Often they are doing so after an asylum officer has determined that they have a what's called a credible fear, like someone's looked at their case and heard their testimony and said, yeah, it looks like you have a pretty good chance you're going to win. 
but the attorney general right now is is deci- is actually um, decided that he's going to look at the rule of whether or not those folks coming to the border could ever be released under any cir- under, under amount of any amount of bond at all. So there's a mix, but a lot of people are still being detained. They're they're just being detained together. Wow. So um, it's definitely some concerning elements happening. Um, for people who want to get involved in this issue and learn more about your group, what's going to be kind of the future? Yeah, great. I'm glad you asked. Because, <laughs> of course, we're, you know, our model, like, how do you provide, how do you say to the world you're going to try and have a lawyer for every single person who's in court? Well, it's expensive to do if you're going to have all lawyers. But in under our model, um, we will be training um, lawyers and non-lawyers to pass an accreditation program that allows them to actually, you know, sign off on um, immigration applications and if they want to, to go to court and stand with some of these individuals. So if you really want to, like, you're like, this is my issue, I'm going to learn it, I'm going to do this, like, you, there's going to be an opportunity to persist, to do this training and to participate. There's going to be other um, opportunities just around the office, but I think what it, you know, to learn more over the next kind of few, I guess, weeks, coming weeks, as we're getting going and launching, um, on October 1st at um, the office that will be uh, Immigrant Justice Idaho, which is 3775 West Casha Street, uh-huh. at the corner of Leta, 3.30 at one, um, on October 1st on Monday, we're going to have a press conference announcing the launch, talking about the bit of work. Some of our partners will be there, a former client will be there, um, talking about the need. The next day, October 2nd at 6 o'clock, at the Linen Building, there's actually going to be a report back from the border. So all of us who went to the border will talk about what happened there, what the experience, and what the needs are arising out of that problem. And then the third thing is you got to get ready for the party because there's always got to be a party. There's going to be a launch. So November 9th at the Linen Building, Immigrant Justice Idaho will sort of have its kickoff party with all of the party uh, <laughs> characteristics, music, food, bar <laughs> you know all of it uh so um we in, in you know the facebook li- the facebook page is, is uh open now but the website will probably not be live until monday all right thank you for all that and the, the update on what you're doing in Immigr- immigrant justice idaho unfortunately we have to take a, another one of those short breaks you're listening to uh, the big 10 on radio boise this is john davis of conan and you are listening to radio boise krbx 89.9 fm boise caldwell and 93.5 downtown boise community radio for boise and beyond hails you're back on uh the big 10 on radio boise and i'm your host today luke fowler my co-host jackie kettler and Corey cook and our special guest uh, maria andrade um and who's been telling us about uh, immigrant justice idaho but uh unfortunately we're going to move to another topic a big uh, breaking news story today that's uh been all over the the internet and the the news channels and those are the uh, confirmation hearings uh, of brett kavanaugh the uh president trump's supreme court nominee um today both he and uh dr ford who was a, has accused him of sexual assault um have both testified in the front of the senate um lots of interesting headlines and things have come out of that today um and lots of things to talk about um unfortunately we have a limited amount of time so we'll try to hit the the important stuff um but one of the things that that stuck out to me is both uh, kavanaugh and lindsey graham uh said during the hearings that these were both disgraceful and unprecedented so i think my first question to the political scientists in the room uh is Exactly how unprecedented are these hearings and what's going on here today? I mean, especially in the light of, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas's hearings and then before that, Robert Bork's. Well, uh, so 
I, I guess I tend to agree in terms of this particular version of these hearings is unprecedented. I think obviously we've had contentious hearings in the Senate in the past, and certainly as you as you reference the uh, uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings with Anita Hill were certainly, uh, which I remember from, at the time happening. Um, we're, we're certainly deeply contentious. Uh, frankly, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's defense today very much mirrored, in fact, drew some of the exact language that Clarence Thomas used now uh, 25 years ago. So to some extent, it's things we've seen before. But, um, you know, in the new partisan political environment that we operate in, uh, to see uh, just the, the anger on the dais among the senators towards each other, the, the degree to which people are sort of interpreting the testimony of, of both Dr. Ford and, and, and Justice Kavanaugh through the, the political lens that they bring, uh, the, the potential for this to just further divide uh, uh, political attitudes and partnership around the country. This strikes me as, a, as just a, another another pretty significant step towards that that we haven't seen before. Yeah, and it's it's definitely true. We're now seeing like polar partisan polarization on many issues that wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily think of as partisan. And here there is a little bit more of a direct partisan element. But I, I agree that I think people are going to react to this many people in a partisan manner. Um, however, there's also an interesting reaction we're seeing from many women sharing their experiences, their Me Too story, including Republican women. So how Republican women respond to this, I think will be interesting, especially looking to the midterms coming up um, here soon. So, uh, Corey, you uh, told me the other day in an email that you remember where you were during the Anita Hill hearings, right? So are you uh, suggesting that, you know, when we look back in this at 20 years, we're going to remember where we are on this day? Is it that level of kind of a historical moment? And I'll point out during the Anita Hill uh hearings that I was like five years old. Thank so you. No, just to really, highlight really the age difference. Feel good. I, I'm pre- still I appreciate very, that. I'm still very yeah, no, youthful. That was, that was tremendously helpful. Just to, <laughs> again, we try to, we try to paint a, a, a visual, a, a word picture for our listeners, and I, I think you've done a lovely job of that. So, um, you know, it's hard to say because there's, there's almost daily there is something that we haven't seen before, and the level, uh, the, the, the constant degradation of our political discourse seems to reach a new low almost on a daily basis. Um, at the same time, you know, watching the hearings today, it, it's striking that I, I do think we will look back on this and remember this is another key moment in American political history. Um, I think, you know, as... Um, I think as Jackie said earlier, I think, you know, certainly the president has been a lightning rod. His tweets... Uh, about this case in particular have not been helpful. Uh, certainly, it's, I think, encouraged women to, you know, when he tweets about saying, why wouldn't she not have said anything at the time? Uh, I think it's just really sort of poking at a, a really sore topic for a lot of people around the country and doing it in such a, a, a really um, distasteful way. I think, you know, certainly raise the, the, the expectations for today. But, you know, after Dr. Ford's testimony, reading on social media, reading on the major news sites, it's incredibly credible and believable. And Republicans are starting in those hours afterwards saying, we might have to pull this, uh, this, this candidate today. This, this is really quite a credible case that she's made. And this has really changed the way we view uh, the, his candidacy, uh, he then steps in and, and argues a very forceful, uh, I think, it's a sense of, at least I'm reading about from other people's evaluations, equally credible presentation. And now you see those partisan camps heighten again. And to see that sort of flow 
in the midst of a day-long activity is something, again, just strikes me as a thing that we will point, come back to 20 years from now and say, this is a unique hearing. Uh, this is not about um, President Obama's justice not being uh, heard, let alone confirmed. Obviously, just, Justice Gorsuch is not subject to these sorts of allegations. We didn't have this type of hearing uh, in his nomination process. Uh, but So I do think we will remember this as a, as a pretty key moment. Well, you know, uh, I thought it was interesting how well both uh, Dr. Ford and Justice or Judge Kavanaugh, uh, not Justice, uh, Ju- <laughs> Judge Kavanaugh, uh, I guess their testimony went today, right? And and that's something that both sides have talked about. And I guess the overall hope was that one of the like one side was going to do so terrible that it was just going to make this decision easy for everyone. But that's not at all what happened, right? I think this has just uh, exacerbated the situation. One of the things that that strike me, and I was telling you you both earlier, is um, that the headlines have been on the two people that are testifying and not anyone else in the room. Because what I honestly expected was um, for some of the all white male Republican delegation there to say things that were going to be embarrassing. Um, now, it was interesting that they ceded all their time to a prosecutor. Um, and, and I was wondering, what, what are your thoughts of, of that strategy? Do you think they were uh, aware of these optics or that they just really thought that this prosecutor is going to do a better job than they, they were during the questioning? So some re- newer research is coming out, and um, especially women do negatively react to policy and panels that are all men and so I think there is some recognition that of them being all men is problematic for this type of subject matter and that they may not be the best ones to be running um, this show so I think there is some awareness there Um, additionally I mean you know figuring out how how to best handle this type of, of testimony is challenging so that's also perhaps a solution to that yeah and i, I mean uh, it's certainly a difficult position to, to, to try to question dr ford uh in front of the senate in, in this scenario um and ask about questions about her her, her story and not attack her as a person and, and victim shaming or victim blaming um which i mean of course the republicans are, are famous for doing even though, i mean president trump has done that many a times so uh i mean i honestly i, I was shocked that this didn't turn out better because i think uh today was really a lose-lose situation for the republicans and i i think they didn't lose big today and so i, I was pretty surprised by that and how it played out um so other than this i mean what what other kind of takeaways were there from today the i mean is it anything that we particularly should draw attention to or, or be looking for in the news in the the next couple of days yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for many people, is how is this going to, I mean, obviously, there's the immediate <laughs> confirmation hearings and, and perhaps in vote, but also how it might impact the midterm elections. And last time we saw women become much more engaged after the Anita Hill um, testimony, become bigger turnout, bigger gender gap in the vote, in addition to seeing more women elected. We have a lot of women who have won primaries going into the midterm election. So seeing how this now impacts the midterm elections will also be interesting. And, and those hearings were at an earlier point in the political cycle. So those in, inspired some candidates to jump into the race. And so it's interesting now that we have the nominees. It is already a much more diverse candidate pool. Uh, it's obviously happening closer to the election. And so will this then heighten the degree to which this impacts the election or will it blunt it because it didn't have the uh, effect of mobilizing candidates themselves to jump into the race or to raise money or some of the things that we may have seen in, in 1992? 
Although many women who ran already were motivated by the Me Too movement. So um, yeah. there was already some of this happening, um, not direct. So it may continue to feed into that. So thank you. Uh, interesting comments. Um, and of course, that that's a big story. We're over here signaling each other, trying to decide if we're going to continue talking about this. But uh, I think f- so. The show after ours is actually less interesting than ours. Right? Yeah. So we're just going to keep going. Uh, no, unfortunately, my, yeah. my apologies. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time today. And that's what uh, Corey is trying to uh, signal, uh, signal me about. Uh, you've been listening to uh, the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. Uh, I've been your host today, Luke Fowler, who am I? co-host and colleagues from the School of Public Service, Jackie Kettler and Corey Cook, and our special guest, Maria Andrade uh, from Immigrant Justice Idaho. Thank you for listening.